say good morning. I want to greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here at Bethel this morning. I trust that you've had a good Sunday school. We did. And I promise you there was no collusion between Lowell and myself as to our subject this morning. And I don't know if to say it was a coincidence or if the Lord is trying to tell us something, but I, uh, I don't apologize for either one. I appreciate your prayer for me as we share the message this morning. The title of this morning's message is The Final Enemy. The text is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. I invite you to turn there. We'll be reading that together shortly. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. Dr. W.A. Criswell, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, said on one occasion on an airplane flight, he found himself seated beside a well-known theologian. He desperately wanted to start a conversation, and they did get to talk. The man told Dr. Criswell about how he had recently lost his little boy through death. Dr. Criswell listened as he told his story. He said he had come home from school with a fever and we thought it was just one of those childhood things, but it was a very virulent form of meningitis. The doctor said, we cannot save your little boy, he'll die. And so this seminary professor, loving his son as he did, sat by the bedside to watch this death vigil. It was the middle of the day and the little boy whose strength was going from him and whose vision and brain were getting clouded said, Daddy... It's getting dark, isn't it? The professor said to his son, Yes, son, it is getting dark, very dark. Of course, it was very dark for him. He said, Daddy, I guess it's time for me to go to sleep, isn't it? He said, Yes, son, it's time for you to go to sleep. The professor said the little fellow had a way of fixing his pillow just so and putting his head on his hands. When he slept and he fixed his pillow like that and he laid his head on his hands and he said, Good night, Daddy. I will see you in the morning. He then closed his eyes in death and stepped over into heaven. Dr. Criswell said that the professor didn't say any more after that. He just looked out the window of that airplane for a long time. Then he turned back and looked at Dr. Criswell with the scalding tears coming down his cheeks and said, Dr. Criswell, I can hardly wait till the morning. Dr. R. DeVries says, Light and dark... Sweet or sour, big and small, each alone, but only understood together. Life and death, when one begins, each begins. The baby's first cry echoes the tears of the grave. Joseph Bailey, writing in his book, The Last Thing We Talk About, says, This frustrates us, especially in the time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. We may postpone it, we may tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow with Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, and old man. 
The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient, for the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares none. You've heard it called the Grim Reaper. You've seen the depiction, the shroud and the scythe. Maybe it is the silent graveyard that makes you think of death. Have you ever touched a dead person? I don't know if you have. Most of you probably have. It's a really unnatural feeling that you'll get if you touch a dead person. It's cold, it's clammy, it's waxen. There's no movement in the nostrils, no twinkle in the eyes, no smile on the lips. Death feels terrible, unreal, and unnatural. And when we stand over the body of someone we love, we feel helpless, perhaps angry, defeated, and afraid. And death is very sobering. It's frightening, it can be terrifying even. Death is like an enemy, an enemy that will take us all. The scriptures have many names for death, but I have chosen to use the final enemy. And I take that from 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Speaking of Jesus. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I don't think we should be preoccupied with death. I don't think I am preoccupied with death. I don't think I'm morbid. Some of you may be. I don't know. I don't think you are. But I think it is very good for us to take a look every once in a while as Christians at the issue of death. It is a very important subject to think about and to come to terms with. Because it's, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. Death and corruption all around us. You know, in our civilized society, we bury death. We take the old cars to the junkyard and uh, we bury uh, our parents and our friends and our spouses under the ground and we cover them up with dirt or we burn them. In the next 80 years or so, we'll all be dead. Every one of us, gone. If Christ doesn't return first. We were created to live forever. Death is not God's plan. God did not plan for death. He knew it would happen. God knows everything. Death came later. Death is a corruption of, of that which was made, which was very good. Corruption is evil. Evil is corruption. It wasn't always like this. In the beginning, God made everything very good. There was no evil. There was no corruption. God did not create evil. Evil is a corruption of that which is good. It is a rust. It is a cancer. It is a rot. And it started, as we, as far as we know, with the fall of Satan. Satan initiated corruption on earth with the deception of Adam and Eve, and through their decision to yield to temptation, we have inherited death from our first parents. Genesis 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It began with spiritual death and in the end resulted in a physical death. God did not say, If you eat of it, I'm going to kill you. God didn't kill them. 
It was the sin that killed them. Sin and corruption. Death came on as a result. Satan is the purveyor of death. He's a salesman for death. He is love's death. He is an instrument of death. He promotes it. He surrounds himself with it. And Jesus came to earth to fight against death. As the Bible says, it grieved him. He looked on as death came on in the world and it grieved him. And he came to fight death. When Abel's blood was spilled by his own brother, I think God cried along with maybe those around that situation. It grieved him to see the effects of sin on the people he had created, pain and suffering and struggles and corruption and groaning. Romans 8 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you have your Bibles open now to our text, Hebrews 2, I invite you to stand if you are able to, and we want to read this text together. Hebrews 2, begin reading in verse 9. And speaking about Jesus, verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You may be seated. Okay, there are at least three types of death listed in the scripture. And Nelson's Bible Dictionary gives us a very good definition of death. I was blessed reading that definition from Nelson's. It says... Speaking of death, it says a term which, when applied to the lower order of living things, such as plants and animals, means the end of life. With reference to human beings, however, death is not the end of life. The Bible teaches that man is more than a physical creature. He is also a spiritual being. For man, therefore, physical death does not mean the end of existence, but the end of life as we know it, and the transition to another dimension in which our conscience Conscious existence continues. So death for humans is different from the animals in that it is not the end of life. It is a transition into another 
existence. Three kinds of death. The first one would be a physical death. The first person experiencing this was Abel, the second-born child of Adam and Eve. He was killed by his older brother Cain. And I think Satan was ecstatic, his first victim. Physical death begins for us the moment we are born. We begin to die. Some of us are closer than others to physical death. Many of the ancient Hebrews considered physical death to be the end. Those whom God enlightened believed otherwise. So a lot of the Hebrew people believed that was the end. Uh, but uh, those who God had spoken to certainly believed otherwise. Job was one of those. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. I believe we all have a somewhat of a grasp of what physical death is. We've seen it. We, some of us experienced it fairly closely, uh, and we are, will be experiencing it uh, if God tarries. The second kind of death is a, is a spiritual death. Colossians 2 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has, but has passed from death to life. That is spiritual death to life. We were dead spiritually. We were unresponsive. We were cold. We received new life in Christ. We were made alive with Christ by faith. It's a miracle of new life. The third kind of death is eternal death. And that is the separation from God, which those who don't believe on Jesus will experience. There will be eternal separation from God. The Bible refers to it as the second death in the book of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, in verse in chapter 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the eternal death, the separation from God. What is the origin or the cause of death? Why is there death? How did it come about? As I mentioned earlier, God created us and wanted us to live forever with Him in, in a relationship with Him. But death happens. Um, 
I don't know if Brother Dan may have seen these things or signed one of these, but I'm told they, they happen when when someone dies. It's called a death certificate. And the Commonwealth of Virginia issues a death certificate when someone dies. And uh, there is a place in the middle of the document, you probably can't read it from there, but in the middle that describes the cause of death. And I don't know if it's actually a fact or it is an assumption in some cases or, or a fact. And it'll say uh, things like, uh, I don't know their names, heart disease or it'll say stroke or whatever the medical terms would be for those things that cause death. But if I was to put the root cause of death, I would put in their sin. Sin is what brought death. So if you want to blame death on anything, you're going to have to blame sin. Death certificates list the cause of death. It's not cancer. It's not an accident. It's not old age. These are the mere symptoms of the real cause, which is sin. Sin is the sting of death. It is that which causes death. It is the agent of death. O death, Romans 15 says, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Satan, I believe, is the architect. He's the planner. It's his way of doing business. It's his source of power over mankind. That is death. Satan enjoys power over mankind through death. It is his personal weapon and source of bondage over mankind. Lands of darkness are places where Satanism is rampant. The cults that champion death are satanic. Have you seen some of them? The goth. The, the dark people that, that glory in death, they, are, they are often have a close association with Satanism. Satan is a coward. And I've seen or heard of it happening when people are close to death, he attacks so fiercely. And people begin to question their salvation. And they begin to question their forgiveness. And they look back and they see their sin, their fierce doubt can come into people's hearts when they're facing death. I think we should really pray for people when they're facing death. Our fellow Christians that are going in through the valley of the shadow of death, let's pray. Let's pray for courage. Let's pray for reassurance. All sin originated with Satan. Death came as a result of sin. When Adam and Eve made the choice to sin, they switched allegiance from God to Satan and his kingdom of death and sin. And their children, which is us, have inherited this sinful nature, and we're subject to sin and death. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of the one to come. Death happened down through the centuries and is still happening today. I want to talk about the fear of death. 
fear of death. Our text that we read, verses 14 and 15, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, speaking of Christ, that through death, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So purpose for Christ's coming was to destroy Satan's power, Satan's grasp on people's lives, and to deliver those who are slaves to the fear of death. And there are those who are very much slaves to the fear of death. William Hurst was a man that lived from 1863 to 1951, was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men of the 20th century. At the height of his media career, he was worth over $500 million, and that's back then. He built an enormous castle in the hills near San Simon, California. At more than 90,000 square feet, it took 28 years to build. It is one of the largest, most opulent homes in America, rivaling the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. Hearst often invited the Hollywood elite to visit him in his castle. It was a mark of a celebrity's true star status if they were invited to Hearst's castle for a weekend. When guests arrived, they were informed of one very strict rule. They were warned if they broke this rule, they would be immediately escorted off the property and never invited to return. Whenever the guests were in Hearst's presence, there was one word they could never utter, and that was the word death. Hearst had a horrible fear of death. He was so afraid of it that when one of the palm trees at San Simeon died unexpectedly, the gardeners painted it, its leaves green until it could be replaced at a time when Hearst was gone. This wealthy tycoon did everything he could to ignore death, but it, with that amount of wealth, and even with that amount of wealth and power, he couldn't prevent death. On August 14, 1951, he died, and when, then he had to face judgment. The fear of death is often beneath the surface. It's not right out on the surface. Um, sometimes it takes a, it's an incident for it to, to surface, if you will. Something happens, and then it becomes very prevalent. Some of it is natural. I think we all want to survive. We are survivors, and, and, and so as a measure of that is perhaps natural. The fear of death is wrong when it holds us captive. That's the picture I get from our text in Hebrews, is that when this fear holds us captive, it becomes wrong. And that's why Christ came, is to deliver those who were all their lives held captive by the fear of death. Most unbelievers, I would say, do not live with the fear of death in the forefront. If they have had a fear of death, they know how to kind of squelch that and put it back into the background. They simply rev up their lives so that there is no time to think about death. They simply get involved with all kinds of things, sports and entertainment and, and work and, and pleasure and all these kinds of things. It's kind of like, somebody said it's like a uh, cruise control on your car. 
It's set at 55. When you drift back to 55 then and below 55, it adds fuel to the engine to, to pick it back up. When people find themselves slowing down to where they can really think, maybe contemplation and their soul is starting to get active and they're starting to think about death and where the future may lie, they just rev it up and bring it up over top of that so they don't have to think about death anymore. And I'd like for us as Christians even to be thinking about that. If we have a real fear of death and we're covering it up by maybe lots of activity and not allowing ourselves to think of it, that's one reason I'm perhaps sharing this morning. Maybe it's the reason God brought this all to us today is that we need to we need to be able to think about it. We need to look at it. Okay, we need to address it. We don't need to sit there and think about it all day. I think that's being morbid. But I think I think we we need do need to address it. And if there's a problem in our lives to where we have to cover up, we have to rev up our lives to keep from thinking about it. Then then we we need there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be taken care of. We're being held captive by the chains of fear. We are evading that fear of death. I want to next talk just a bit about the defeat of Satan. Our passage in Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. First John 3 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why God came. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross, was to destroy the works of the devil, to, to basically uh, to crush the power of Satan. Genesis 3 says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On, the, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is considered to be the first, prom, the first messianic promise. He shall bruise your head. He's speaking of Christ. The woman's seed is going to bruise the head of Satan. And that's the reason Christ came is to bruise the head of Satan and to get rid of that fear of death that is haunting so many people because they can't stop and think about death in a quiet moment because they're so afraid of it. They know they're not ready to die and they should be fearing death. But Christ came to bruise the head of Satan, to crush his power, his hold that he has on people. First point I would like to make under the defeat of Satan is that delivery from the power of death is tied in with the defeat of Satan at Calvary. One of the primary reasons that Satan is defeated today, can be defeated today, is through the death of Christ on Calvary. His major weapon must be taken away 
the fear of death that has held so many in bondage all their lives. The early church considered the defeat of the wicked one to be a major part of the doctrine of atonement. Second point I would like to make then is that Satan had the power of death. The scripture that we read this morning is very clear about that. Satan did have the power of death. They became his domain. They belonged to him. And when Jesus was being tempted, Satan took him up to the high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time, and he said to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus resisted that temptation, but it was a real temptation. Satan did have a lot of power and authority. The third point I'd like to make under the defeat of Satan is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they switched their allegiance and became subject to Satan and the powers of evil and death. Adam and Eve chose to sin, chose to follow Satan's suggestion, and they their allegiance then was to him rather than to God. And the powers and the kingdoms of the world became Satan's domain. I don't believe that Satan realized what the plan was. I think Satan didn't know what God's plan was in sending Christ. I think he was deceived. He thought that he could kill Christ and he would be victorious once again. I don't think he realized that with Christ's death on the cross, there would be a nail in his own coffin, if you want to say it that way. He would be crushed. First Corinthians 2, verse 6 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I think Satan and his minions shouted with glee when Christ bowed his head and died. But they were, um, they were the losers in the end. Peter in his sermon at Pentecost says the following, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What an amazing thing happened that Sunday morning when Christ broke through. Power of death is defeated. Satan is crushed. The sting of death is, it's gone. 
It's the power that holds and grips people is not there anymore for us. It can't hold us. It can't grip us anymore with fear and chains. I'd like us to sing together that triumphant song. Uh, Up from the grave he arose. Lo, in the grave. part of this morning's message, and that is the deliverance from the fear of death. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. John 11, Martha said to Jesus, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Death is certain. Something all of us will face. How are we going to deal with it? Does the fact that we are Christians affect the way we look at it and think of it? It must. What factors allow us to look ahead, to look ahead at our final enemy with confidence that we will be victorious? I have five points that I'd like to make. The first one is that our sins are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Sin was the, the, the reason for death in the beginning. Death is ultimately a spiritual issue, not just a physical one. We were created to live with God forever, to enjoy fellowship with Him. Sin messed that all up. Sin must be dealt with. And Jesus provided the atonement for our sins. Through His death and resurrection, He provided the atonement for our sins. Our sins are washed away. We trusted Christ. Our sins are washed away. They've been cleansed. Not through anything we've done or through any way that we have made atonement for them in any way ourselves. We could never atone for our sins. We could never do enough good things to make our sins go away. The blood of Jesus cleansed us from all sin. The ransom is paid. Satan, of course, would like to bring doubt that our sins are really gone we got to go back to the blood of Christ and claim the blood and his victory over Satan. John, 1 John 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sins are gone. Do you believe that? Our sins are gone. They've been taken care of. The second point is that we have been born into his family. We are part of God's family. From Adam, we inherited all these faulty genes, sin genes, sins and death went together. In Adam, we die. In Christ, we are made alive. We are part of God's family now. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, but so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Number three, God loves us and wants us to live with him forever. This is an assurance that we can have to overcome the fear of death, that God loves us and wants us to live with him forever. And we, we pass through that death portal so that we can go to his house to live with him. We cross, I know they, they figuratively, we, they, they talk about mighty Jordan. These are all these figures of where we cross and we, we've crossed now and we've gotten come into God's presence. Whatever figure you want to use, this is the transition. 
that we can be with God forever. And God loves us. Do we need to do I need to prove that? I don't. Christ has already proved that he loves us. And we can be thoroughly confident of God's love to us and his good intent for us. Number four, the power of God is more than adequate to overcome death. The final enemy is no match for God's power. Ephesians 1 says, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. God's power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available for us. Finally, we are ready to go. Our relationship with God is up to date. Charles Swindoll shares a story of a friend who he used to work with. He says, I worked in a machine shop for four and a half years alongside a fellow named George. His job was to sweep and clean out the shavings underneath the huge lathes and machines we were running. George was born again, and he loved the teaching of the scripture on prophecy. I remember hearing him sing hymns as he worked. Many of them had to do with the coming of Christ, such as in the sweet by and by and when the roll is called up yonder. Late one Friday afternoon, about 10 minutes to quitting time, when we were all weary, I looked at George and said, George, are you ready? He said, uh-huh. But he was all dirty. He was just obviously not ready. In fact, he looked like he was ready to keep on working. I said, are you ready to go home? He said, yeah, I'm ready. I said, look at you, man. You're not ready. You got to clean, go clean up. No, he said, let me show you something. So he unzipped his coveralls and underneath were the neatest, cleanest clothes you can imagine. He had them all ready. All he did when the whistle blew was just unzip and step out of that coverall, walk up, punch his clock, and he was gone. He said, you see, I stay ready to keep from getting ready, just like I'm ready for Jesus. Amen. We stay ready. Behold, he is coming with clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about these, those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do ha who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death can be a terrifying thing. For the believer, death is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's time to go home. 
Death for us is a transition into a new, better life with God, free from sin and its effects, free from the presence of sin, living in the presence of God. Key is preparation on our part, staying ready, keeping our relationship with God up to date, trusting his mercy and grace and forgiveness. With Paul, we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. God bless you.